Welcome to I Think This Is Great with Play Enferno. Today we are speaking with Tobias Grave from Portland's Soft Hill and RIP City. Let's get into the conversation. Please leave a review on iTunes as Season 2 kicks off. All right, everybody, welcome to I Think This Is Great. Clay Inferno here with Tobias Grave. Dude, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. It's been a while since we chatted, and I think the last time I saw it, call it at merch, but you were like still doing shit over at Great Scott was the last show I think I saw you guys play. Yeah, that would have been 2018. Mm -hmm. That was a great show. That place is gone. I don't know if you heard that, but they raised a bunch of money and they're going to open up a new one. Amazing. That was interesting. I left the New England area, I guess it would have been around like 17, 18 years old. And I mm -hmm. would come back intermittently, but I never went to Great Scott. I never made it to one ballroom until the last, I guess it would have been 2019. We went on tour. Yeah, 2019 um, show. Yeah. A lot of the places that, that, that Boston is known for, outside of the Middle East and the Rat when I was a kid, mm -hmm. I didn't go to. Yeah, it's sad that once is also the same boat they closed the place but they're gonna try to find a new place it's all about community and, and we'll get through it and there'll be places for you to play <laughs> when you come back soft kills your band we met you wanted to book one of my favorite chameleons at the middle east when i was working there and those fucking shows were fun i think we did too right first one we did the first one i was there soft kill didn't play that was a great show and the last one was was fucking great too. I mean, the Middle East as a kid, that was the, the place. If you could get downstairs and play a show, mm -hmm. even if you were first of five or something. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. That looked really good to your friends when you hung your flyer up at Bull Moose or whatever. So it was cool to get back there with with a band that like the like the first real legitimate band that I've put a bunch of effort into. Yeah, those were so fun. Yeah, when I was coming up, that was Chameleons were one of those bands I would hear. The only time I would get to hear them was on a Sunday night radio show. And I was like, oh, fuck, what is this? I, I fucking love this. And, I, and then I kind of forgot about them. But then Mark just kept putting out music. And and uh, and then, yeah, thankfully came back for that Chameleons Vox tour. And that was just like, that blew my mind, man. That was like one of the best shows I've ever been involved with. <laughs> so thank you for bringing now that. Yeah. Oh, of course. Those. Yeah. He, his band, who he's put together. I don't know who's playing with him when he comes to the States now, but for that period, they did an incredible job of recreating that stuff. The last time there was a bit of a snafu with one of the touring guitar players. So we were kind of round robining mm -hmm. and playing, mm -hmm. I guess it would have been Reg's parts, but there's also kind of a strange connection because Roger that was in Curtain Society, Right. He played guitar for them. And I think they were his backing band many years ago. So, yeah, just one of those absolutely phenomenal bands, a huge influence on Soft Kill, just in the way that the guitars interplay and then the simplicity of the bass right down the middle. Such a blueprint that I feel gets like kind of disregarded, especially in this post-punk genre where mm -hmm. everyone's just Peter hooking up high, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh man, there's so much more you can do, you know? <laughs>
Well, speaking of that, we have to talk about Soft Kill because their latest record is literally on repeat. I cannot stop listening to it. It's so amazing. And I always keep an eye on what my friends are doing. And I, I might not, I have a lot of friends that play music, so I might not listen to everybody's new record, you know, but I'll still support them. And I'll, I'll, I'll of course, when you come to town, I'm going to see you live no matter who's putting on the show. But this record really... The reason I reached out was A, to catch up and see how you and the family are doing, but just this record is so amazing that I just have to give you ultimate props, man. I, I love it. It's so good. Back to front. It was, there was specific records when I was growing up that really mentally for me shaped the concept of track listing and mm you know, just getting from start to finish without skipping songs. And it's not always just that every song on those records is great, but they have their place, I think was what's always kind of been embedded in my mind. Yeah, so thinking of it as an album, even right. though we are in a single-based music economy where you can drop 100%. a single. But, but a band like yours can do, well, I want to get into like record labels and, and, and your art and stuff like that, but you can put out a seven-inch and have a single yeah. just like you would have done maybe old school record industry style and not just drop it on soundcloud or whatever and i understand the streaming side and embrace it due to the business aspect of living off of the band so mm -hmm. i do i don't completely reject i'm not full bore old school in the mentality that like I've di i'm disregarding the future and yeah. only second, which I, I respect when people do that. But I feel like there's a way to be celebratory of everything that made sense to me as a young punk kid mm -hmm. in New England and how mm -hmm. the, like how seven inches came out as you were saying, and but also understand how to market a band in this modern era where a lot of people don't buy records mm -hmm. and that playlisting is a big promotional thing. But this was the first album where I was demoing material and then listening to this track list of demos and then going, mm -hmm. that song's going away, put it back to this one. And it was literally yeah. down to the wire of two weeks before we went down there, maybe even less than that, that I took like three or four of the songs. And Conrad had written a riff or put together this, a skeleton of this song, Oil Burner. And I was like, we got to put that on there. And like, we finished that. Mm -hmm. And then maybe there was two others that came in. And it was really just the only time that a lot of time was spent scrutinizing the material till it was this finished 10 song demo version led us into the studio, which I think played a big part in it. Yeah. So I've never been that type of person. It was just you write, eight, when you have eight songs, you go do the album. You know what I mean? Yeah which is, it was cool to have the luxury to do that. And was that a little bit, I, I read some other interviews just specifically about this record because the band's been around since 2010, I want to say, or maybe before that, kind of around then. So that's like 10 plus years. Right, so 2010, fall of 2010, we record the first album, comes out the spring of 2011. But that little period of time, we probably played 12 shows, mm -hmm. 2011 to the end of 2011. I was completely immersed in drugs. 
I was living off the grid. I was living off of mm -hmm. stealing from stores and mm -hmm. other fucking, you know, totally degenerate criminal activity. I is that pretty stereotypical at this point kind of story of of uh, non-functional junkie. So mm -hmm. there's this period where the first time Soft Kill really does anything serious, regardless of releasing that first record, was when I met you on that first Chameleons run. So that mm -hmm. we played, I think, maybe eight or nine of those shows leading up to Chicago, where I was yeah. living at the time. And then I flew out and met up with them. But that was the first real Soft Kill tour. So yeah. it's really kind of, it's been a band for 10 years. It's also kind of just been a band for five or six years. Yeah. Um, I was hoping we would get to talk about your sobriety just a little bit and how it relates to the record. Also, you know, how it makes this different than last record and that you're doing different stuff with your life now. But what actually came out of this was a really great record, in my opinion, that could only have come from all of the other experience true it's the record itself is i've had had a hard time finding the exact word because it's an eulogy in a weird way it's a celebration it's it's a, just a, a record about a ton of people that i can't share my sobriety with for you know right. due to the fact that they didn't survive and portland is a Sometimes I look at it as it's a big part of my story. It's also a blip due to if you if you know you struggled with addiction or have gotten into recovery, mm -hmm. you realize like how kind of one dimensional and short sighted your world mm -hmm. really is. Very self absorbed. So it's this big piece at times, but also what did I accomplish in that time? But I met all of these remarkable people, a lot of whom were mm -hmm. incredibly talented artists, mm -hmm. and they fucking died. You know. And I struggled with survivor's guilt for a very long time, mm -hmm. definitely having done so much stuff that I wasn't proud of and destroying relationships mm -hmm. and friendships over and over again. I was kind of felt like I was being punished because I didn't know that there could yeah. be a life outside of drug use. So I'm like, yeah, I know. Great. I get to live through this. And this is, I've got to feel this pain every day. Thank you so much. Like just again, very self-absorbed. And uh, yeah, this was the first album where I was clean and it was reflective and there was closure that came from it. Mm -hmm. And there was honesty and transparency. Nothing is buried in, I think, metaphor. It's just really visceral in that sense, what was trying to be conveyed. And God, dude, I was really the one that just based off the bands that I grew up loving was bands don't make the good records clean. You know what I'm saying? They, yeah. You got to get just totally fucking gacked out and make a Spaceman 3 record. And that's the only way. And it turns out that's not fucking true necessarily at all. Yeah, it's um, kind of like it really should be take it or leave it. It really should be the art should come out of wherever you're coming from. Uh, right. Regardless of whether you're using or not, or you're drinking or not, or you're slipping or not, or you're this or that or not. I really was feeling because I, I'm I'm really a lyric guy because I when I, I sang in my band and I never played guitar. I don't I don't I have much respect for people that can play guitar and, and write and sing and play at the same time. 
that's one thing. But but I'm a lyric guy, and I focused on all the lyrics to this record in in such a way that I did feel, to repeat what you're saying, a celebration of life and a celebration of loss, which is really way, way it has to do with sobriety, sure, but like just just in life, it's it's really important to to think about the bad times and the the sad times and your friends and that you miss them. It's also okay to move on. It's also okay to come out and come out with what, I love the sound of all your records, but the production on this record is really clean and super hits all the right, literally all the right notes and and the, the keys, everything sounds so cohesive and such a it really is, it's, it's kind of sad boy, but it, it's really not. It's really a celebration of, of these people. And I was identifying so much with those stories because I have those same stories. So I just think that you really nailed it because I don't know your friends or your friends that you've lost, but those same oh, stories do. of this, but I do because, and I have to use this excuse and ask you about the song that's, I, I think it's Inverness. Yeah. One of the things that scares me most about my drinking and my crazy fun time I had in 2004, 2005, I was having a blast. You know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> but I was on the roof. I was dating this girl and she was totally, she was totally a rock star kind of chick, you know, like ripped Motley Crue t-shirts and and super hot and she's just a rock and roll chick we go to fucking lucky dog in worcester to see dizzy reed play like rock and roll and we were at a just a cake party or something and then i was so drunk that i was pissing off the roof and literally a feather could have made me fall off the roof and i could have just seen the ground come up at me and i heard behind me or maybe she told me the next day that her friend grabbed her and was like, oh my God, Clay is so close to the edge of the roof. But also like, we shouldn't say anything. We shouldn't, because if we say something, we might startle him. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was just, that song instantly transports me to that moment because I remember it. And I kind of sort of remember how reckless I was being, but I almost, I remember not caring at the same time. Right. You know, so... Um. So Inverness is one of, I think, four songs on the record where my partner Nicole and I kind of call and response stories lyrically. Mm. Nicole's is, mm. is a great writer. That's that's her art form. And she's pushed me. I think one of the reasons my writing on the record is so good is this is the first time that I really did have the confidence to understand that lyrics are so fucking important and that what makes songs memorable and and successful is where lyrics and where the voice is placed in the mix. Mm-hmm. Cause I've always used voice as an instrument and buried it under a lot of reverb. And it's not that yeah. what I'm saying isn't legitimate, but I definitely look back on a lot of those lyrics. I see where I was at. I see the short sightedness of it due to like mm-hmm. being in the throes of addiction, but Inverness is the first verse in, in the chorus is about a guy that used to actually not too far from here in North Portland had a trap house that they were squatting mm-hmm. in and mm-hmm. 
that guy ultimately fell off of the roof of a building and got paralyzed and was still on dope and still buried mm-hmm. in it. He just basically disappeared. It's an, an interesting thing that it's not, junkies aren't just all sitting on social media, especially homeless ones, and people would just disappear from your life randomly yeah. and emerge. Yeah. But yeah, that that's probably my favorite song on the record too. It's mine too. And it was the weirdest thing about it is is how Portland this record is. I was in a park that was known for where you go to slam dope in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. The, back, the public bathroom, when you look up at the ceiling, there's just black tar heroin spray mm. from people clearing their rigs. And there was this xylophone built for kids to play. And mm. I actually like just started picking it up and wrote that. And I went, hold on, this might be something. So I'm in this place that is just polluted with bad memories for anybody that went through it. And this melody birthed from it. And I just filmed it and went home and immediately wrote the entirety of the song. And I think looking once the record cohesively kind of came together, I was like, God, it's crazy how inspired, just how the city pushed a lot of this stuff out, you know, and these stories and these things. But not you being on the roof, like there's, I think the craziest, scariest thing about addiction is when you stop being scared to die. And it hits and it hits fucking hard. And at that point, it's, I never did the bumps. You know what I mean? I mm-hmm. was just constantly in use and went too hard and, and overdosed a million times. And that stuff wasn't scary. Every conversation I had internally where I said, this is my wake up call. Four hours later, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, when you, and when you don't understand the real chemical disease internal yeah. to your brain and psyche, you're just like, I don't understand. I don't understand why <laughs> that can happen. Yeah. And then I'm still having this gravitational pull towards the next bag, you know? And it's then, like- I mean... There is also, neither of us are addiction recovery specialists, but I'd say that every, anybody that's gotten sober from booze, which is, which is my story, or, or, or drugs, there's something they talk about, which is like that first year is kind of, you think you know everything, you don't know anything, you know, you are very confident in being sober. But then after five years, seven years of being sober, you, you really see that's when I that's when I looked in the mirror and was, oh my God, I didn't give a shit about myself on the roof that time. You know what I mean? Like it right. it comes and it hits you like a ton of bricks. But also the song Inverness is it could be the the happiest pop song on the record that if you did, weren't listening as intently as I was to the lyrics, you would just be like, oh, like maybe this is a song about being in a hot air balloon and you're four stories high, you know, or like, or something like that. It's just very poppy. And, and so, uh, just sonically, so cool. like the Boston connection. I was, I want to write a song that sounds like the cars, you know, oh, that was perfect. what I was, that's what I was trying to do. You know, I was like, this is what that vibe is. And it's not that I purposely go into doing that, but it's the second it starts coming out. I go, I try to justify pinpoint the influence. Mm-hmm. To make sure that it's not just the fifth Weezer album or something. And somebody's right. going to be like, what are you doing? Oh. But 
yeah if you're that's a that's a that's a weird that's a, a weird myth is that in getting clean that that first year is the hardest the first year is the easiest because it just feels so strange it, and it, you're just it, and you're having these profound like as the bug clears you're having these profound uneducated uh, you know connections uh, but, between things. yeah you're listening you're in recovery and you're <laughs> surrounded by the group and you're getting the con- what's beautiful about NA, but also slightly dangerous in AA too, is you're getting the support system that is embracive of your growth. You know what I mean? So you're just getting the ego push, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people are still 10 years clean in those rooms for the, the ego validation, which I don't shit on because whatever it takes. No, no, no. That's what yeah. it is. This, then you hit, this- that, you hit that year. And I got my year tag. I just fucking broke and wept and was mm-hmm. internally destroyed and just cried to the whole room and it was not a resolved ex- like a resolving experience it was like i was like what the fuck you know what i mean yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and it starts to be that it was just continuing to go forward and i think the problem for me it's not that do i want to go smoke crack right now absolutely I will, for the rest of my life, want to go do drugs. I totally understand the ceiling of the high. Mm-hmm. I totally understand what I'm getting and that it's not going to be this portal to something I haven't experienced before, which mm-hmm. I believe for many, many years that there was some bottle or bag or way to do it that was going to open the next level of yes. really hell, but of, of pleasure and joy. Mm-hmm and escape but for me it's been deprogramming my life toward the amount of things that were enjoyable and natural in my day-to-day that I associated hand-in-hand with any aspect of drugs listening to rap music I want to be breaking down the blunt to roll up a blunt like that's (laughs) just the thing I always struggle with where I'm like (laughs) yeah that's my I listen to a lot of rap and like I'll be it's like I'm in my zone you know and I put my seat back and I'm driving around <laughs> my little box to five and then I'm just like bro snap the fuck out of it like you're not you're supposed to just you know roll up a 0.5 right now and then you know other things too just like it's just it was such a part of my identity and I think that that's what's what's crazy is that is that record you know it's just like all those people, I guess I just, it was really hard for me that some of these people that I love and care about so much that they didn't get a chance to even reflect on what I'm, I'm reflecting on, even when it's terrible, even when I'm just like, fuck, you know, the record doing well, living off of music. Things that were milestones, that that were accomplishments that I always wanted since I was a child but never expected to get, are incredibly tainted by a lot of guilt that I have Mm -hmm. for just my trajectory in life. Mm -hmm. But also, just who do I celebrate that with? And in in reality, and the short answer is I celebrate that with people like you, people like Nicole, people in my circle that are going through the same stuff, our new bass player, Sean. It's coming up on a year. Same shit, you know? Those Yeah. I'm, so good. I'm not like the super NA guy in the end. I don't only hang out with NA people, but I know my place and I know when I have to leave. And of course, mm-hmm. COVID's been a little easier because like we don't none of us do anything. So I don't so, have to like I gotta leave the party. 
<laughs> yeah, you that know. actually is a, a thing. Did you record this in in 2020? When did you record? The record was recorded. We went on tour in September, October mm -hmm. of 2019. Came home. We had not rehearsed any of these songs outside of Wanting Warm, Pretty Face, and Roses. We had played live. That's I mean, we've been actually playing Wanting Warm, Pretty Face pretty much obsessively. And I've always been a fan of that, like the premiering of the new material live. You get the, you, that's, an, we talk about the marketing of things through this future world. Okay, well, YouTube posting that new song, yeah. those types of things, and that being the only place that you go to to hear that is like, I think that's- I feel funny. like Nicole's great at that stuff, right? Who? Nicole? Nicole's, yeah, she's great at like, oh, this- Oh, Nicole, yeah. Absolutely. She's insane. So- that we had that and then it was just, I think we just fired this thing off where we kind of had been talking to a label and we had set some plans in motion mm -hmm. based off of that conversation. We ended up not going with that label and we were on this fence of, well, I guess we're just gonna not go to the studio because the studio bill is gonna be paid for out of pocket. Who can afford to do that? Mm -hmm. And then something just hit. I think we played did something and then we played had some sort of profound experience where and this happens with me too because i'm still you know with only that only having mm -hmm. a couple years finish my brain flipped and i was we're going to do this record and we <laughs> went down to la with the guy that we had talked to we made good on the dates and showed up we recorded for a few days came home played our first headlining show mm -hmm. in a while locally here on halloween and it was the most epically beautiful reaffirming racing of Sounds any awesome. sort of you know because we were doing a lot of tours with weird heavier bands and stuff to expand our mm -hmm. audience and everyone was looking at us like what are you doing yeah, but who are these guys <laughs> in the existence and it was it was great for us but the existence inside the echo chamber musically and only touring with with obvious peers is i think it just shortens your lifespan you know yeah and Growing up in a, even a scene where punk rock didn't just mean a specific sound. It was everything from the unseen and then Pinkerton thugs who were this like clash, our yeah. clash, you know what I mean? The probably yeah. still one of my favorite bands. But then also, you know, John Pink Murphy's who were pulling from all of these influences. That, yeah, like, and the, I, I, I work for Dropkicks, but I also work for the Boston's. And the Boston's is a punk band, it's a ska band, it's a metal band. They're all of those things. They literally right. literally are. And they play shows when they do their hometown throwdown. They have punk bands and ska bands and metal bands. <laughs> you know, yeah, and if, you went, so great. If, if you went to the Elvis Room of the Rat in the 90s, those bills were very varied and strange. It wasn't until I kind of the later 90s where it felt like there was enough bands that kind of sounded the same where shows started mm. to feel redundant. But you got to have everything kind of felt the same and I didn't realize that you know as my friends tried to start to drag me to a blood for blood or a Sam Black Church show I didn't realize that wasn't punk at the time I just thought it was <laughs> like a and it is but I also just thought it was like a different kind of thing you know whether I liked yeah. it or not and yeah so I was like I'm with you there on the the hardcore it's like it, that's that is part of the scene but it was never really my those weren't really right. my friends but all of my friends love that shit <laughs> right it was it really hit boston hard it, it, no it really hit boston hard actually yeah it did and, hit it 
it, it was just, it was like for a while you had to go to those shows or you weren't going to fucking shows because yeah, this, this like that period where it was Pinkerton Thug Showcase Showdown Unseen, a global threat when they moved from Maine and the statistics and the vigilantes and all these. And then I think Mortar Blast, like there was this whole wave where I was like, this is growing and it's getting bigger. And then all of a sudden it was its own little niche aside. But I didn't know about any of those shows. You know, there was just only hardcore shows. And that, you know, side note without going on a tangent, that's when I started going down to Providence more mm. and found out that there was Great all this kind of weirdo shit that was lightning happening. bolt. Right. Like that hanging world. out at the warehouse. Yes, it, it was all these like you know, <laughs> Fort Thunder and fucking Munch House and Dirt Palace and stuff like those places offered another experience to me because not only did they feel terrifying and, and as terrifying and alienating as the rat first did, you know? Yeah, I mean, but Fort like, Thunder, that's a whole thing. Man. Right, but you're in here, but you're also like, yo, you can just do anything. Like you yeah. really can go and do absolutely anything. And yeah, so for us, it was like we toured and we had great shows and environments that the strength of our music, even it being different from who we were, you know, main support for, that it spoke for itself. And we tried to put on a good live show and be this different experience in that because just to try to grow and it worked. But you go home and you play one of your fucking headlining shows with bands that are your your best. Yes, the best. And it was crazy. And so we, we, after that show, went back down to LA and did 11 days straight. And Dave Trumpio, who produced the album's home studio. So we went from his actual studio to his home studio to do all the guitar overdubs, vocals, synths. And that session was just me and Conrad, our guitar player. It was grueling and it was insane. And it was unorthodox. But when we were finished, we just, I remember crying hearing the record and just being, God, how do we make this? What is this? You know, <laughs> this is above and beyond. And then we sat on it. Dude, we talked to a lot of labels. We went through those big indies that were down to put the record out. All of them, it hit right at COVID though. We played a show. We played one of, She Wants Revenge, played one of their last shows ever right before they oh, broke yeah. the Roxy. We came down. It was a sold out show. It was great. We're like, we're about to have the biggest year of our fucking life. And then yeah. COVID flag. Well, I was, reading, I was reading the press release that, that came out because alternative artist, number one, Billboard, new artist album, number seven, just rocketed up all of the charts on Billboard in 2020. And I imagine you had a tour planned, but you didn't tour. But man, you yeah. the billboard really, people liked it. We self-released the record. It. We ended up turning all the labels that we spoke to said, yeah, what about 2021? And, you know, the, the, being a junkie and instant gratification person, I'm sitting on a record from November that was finished in November 2019. And then there was the period of mastering it. And we had it mastered by Howie Weinberg, who did Combat Rock. And disintegration, you know, <laughs> he had these credentials and that was real exciting for about two weeks till it was done. And then it sounded great again, but it was okay. Well, like, who's fucking putting this out when we're putting it out? And when we Wait. made the decision to basically tell labels, yo, talk to us next year. We'll right. have another record, I'm sure. 
live self-released, that was making that self-investment period the most terrifying moment. The yeah. money going out with yeah. the no promise of it coming back in. And then the response, the record sold out in seconds when we went up for the first, we, the pre-order, yeah. like we pressed what we thought was enough to go the entire from first single to album release. Yeah. And they were all gone in minutes. And then we were like, fuck, this is exciting, but what, <laughs> you know? And then we did yeah. a pre-order a week later for the second press. We sold a bunch of those. We made more money than we've ever made doing anything. We took ownership. We took on a lot more work, but I think growing up with working class parents who like my mom was district supervisor and delivery driver for the Boston Globe in the Seacoast, New Hampshire area of the entirety of my youth. Yeah. My mom got up and went to work at 2 a.m. every morning. I'm not saying that that work ethic was instilled in me. I was a little- It was little, though. You know what I'm saying though? Like it, it, it didn't manifest itself in the same way where I was like, I need to go get a job at Tyco when I turn 18. I was like, I was inspired to, to do stuff different. I went into the pool of drugs the whole time. Every time I put time and effort into projects that were inspiring to me, yeah, my addiction caught up to me every time. And I, and I fucked shit off again and again. But I understand and believe at this time that you've got to put in those 70 hour weeks to get yeah. results. No matter what you do, the concept of artists always being, I just want Spotify to pay me a hundred dollars a stream and then I don't have to do it. <laughs> it's just not realistic, right. you know? Well, you, you've been putting out your own record for a while now. Like you're a band that likes to press a seven inch and likes to populate the market and your fans appreciate that, I'm sure. And you also have a particular art style. I have to actually... What's the photo on the cover of the record? Okay, so that photo is, and I love how it ties into the overall record because the record is about nobody on the record that's spoken about outside of the guy in the wheelchair that falls off the roof, mm. who for all intents and purposes is dead right now. Who knows? Mm. Those are the only two people that survived are the people on the cover. And those mm. are... Two of Nicole's close friends, mm -hmm. she grew up in Eugene, Oregon, mm -hmm. and they were part of the crew of teenage kids that were coming up to Portland for raves, mm -hmm. which Oregon had a huge rave scene. I'm sure everybody everywhere did, had its own little pocket, but, yeah. but Portland and Eugene had a lot of raves. And they're at a rave. I mean, they, you see these kids and it's, it's such a flashback to that era. They're oh my like, God. Yeah, I mean, I, I was there. I was asking just, them for K. <laughs> like, exactly. I, I know those kids. Right. And, and I know Nicole's story was like, older guys would take them to raves because girls wouldn't get searched and they'd have 200 pills in their bra, mm -hmm. you know, and then get them in and they get it out. Those dudes would make a bunch of money. The girls would get free drugs. They'd dance. They'd hang out. But it's just really that photo is there's all this fucking angst and fake confidence right at that cusp of actually mm -hmm. falling into the void of addiction mm -hmm. and stuff like that, which is part mm -hmm. of those girls' stories. It's just, it felt to me like it captured that moment right at the cusp of that really beautifully. It could have been a picture of any of my friends that the record is about, right? Yeah. So 
and it wasn't. So it, it had to be something else. But yeah, like we, besides Choke and Savior, which Profound Lore put out, we've tried to just keep stuff flowing. We haven't been afraid to spend the money to press stuff. We want it to be engaging and, engaging and exciting. It's not hard to do that stuff, you know what I mean? Well, it is. Well, it's funny because my friend posted the August Spies seven inch that I also had in his story today. And I was remembered because I remember back in 1998, whenever that record came out, I was talking to those guys. They were like, what we do is we all work whatever fucking McDonald's or whatever. And then every week we put some money into literally a jar in some, some fucking place in Austin. And they like try to record and press a record and then they do it again. And they just yeah. do it again. It was funny that I saw that today before I talked to you and you mentioned all those other great bands. You know, August Spies, first of all, when I was a kid, I thought the only way you could put out a record is you had to get Bill Toxic to agree to put it out. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I remember being at shows and him being there and I was just like... And what's interesting about that person, I've heard a lot of crazy stuff on the internet about him recently. I think he was going through some struggles with... Uh, mm with people but that band played the same set every single show for five years <laughs> oh yeah it was kind of impressive you know what i mean yeah. I would, they were just like this is what you get you know what i mean like the real yeah, kids see, is the same like, thing too yeah see <laughs> august buys in our town it was bruisers 13 tons of napalm you know, we obviously had the queers and stuff like that too that was not not as much my world i loved the bruisers that was my first elvis from show 13 Tons, that was our band. And I think they did a split with the August Spies, if I remember correctly. But yeah, those bands, like there was just, everybody had a record. Like there was, we'd go to Rock Bottom Records in Portsmouth and it would be every band that I had heard of or seen on the little buildings, it would be like, they would have a seven inch there. And they're, you know, they would sometimes start like the first press would be a photocopied cover. The second yeah. press would be like a glued pocket, you know, actual mm -hmm. printed sleeve. I just think maybe being a dreamer that like, I always just assumed that it was a very simple thing to accomplish and follow through with. I didn't ever think about, you have to get 500 people to buy them. Um, <laughs> right. You know, and this was also in an era where seven inches were what, two to $4 a piece. Yeah. Now they're 10 fucking bucks. They're probably the most financially irresponsible thing that you can do as a band. <laughs> but it's so, like your legacy on Discogs, you know? Right. It's like but all this cool shit you can do with that. I'm, I'm super inspired by Brian Jonestown Massacre's discography. I understand bands that put out the one record every two to five years that people wait for it think also equally inspired by regional underground rap scenes the amount of material that comes out for you to actually if you're not getting these major labels and big managers putting you on the right tours and with the right licensing and publishing and on and on and on it's fairly unrealistic to think that you're going to generate enough revenue off of one record every three right. years and in, in a right. subsequent tour to follow to survive. So for us, it's been constant merchandise, constantly trying to find collaborations to keep us in the mix, but also constantly releasing material to show, to make it interesting for fans and to show them the progression 
is taking place, releasing stuff that is rough around the edges intentionally too, you know, like putting out, before we put out Dead Kids, we put out Premium Drifter, which was eight demos that didn't make the record. Yeah. You know, they weren't re-recorded. And I like that record equally as much. There's yeah. the glimpse into that to me and like fidelity wise, I like lo-fi fucked up shit. So how about your, your design aesthetic is something that I like every time I see something, Oh my God, that's, it's like one of the things where I'm like, I wish I could have thought of that. It looks simple, but it's very, very cool. I don't know. I I just, who does like your graphic design? Is that you? We we use, we use, I do, I used to do like 50% of it. I do probably a third of it now. Mm. I do like behind me, here, I'll grab one. Like, I'll do something like this, you oh, know? Yeah. And really all that it is, is I'm finding a pattern. I'm changing the color. I'm superimposing some grainy thing from a zombie movie and then finding a weird symbol and then picking a typeface because typeface is growing up punk rock, the most interesting thing to me, right? Lettering and stuff of that nature. But we also, we've got kind of a revolving cast of people that we'd like to work with. Ethan McCarthy from Primitive Man just did a mm-hmm. shirt for us. That was a long time coming. We've used this kid, Kiefer, to do some great stuff. We've got a couple people we go back to, but really it's, God, dude, Instagram. Like you get on there, you find artists. <laughs> yeah. Somebody seems like they could create something that's up your alley. You connect with them. Yeah. To talk about it pay them for their art which feels great for us is to be like i love that too to be putting money out to the community which that's one thing in 2020 is we spent money going out to other artists and to our local Mm -hmm. pressing plant which is owned by mark rainey who who does tko records who was Mm -hmm. one of the security guys at the rat Mm -hmm. in the 90s he owns a pressing plant here we probably spent sixty thousand dollars on other independent artists just because we were like i mean stuff that we didn't even necessarily need sometimes we're just yo pay pay a bill you know what i mean like give us a shirt design fuck it you know like yeah come from it some of those designs hit too like some shirts sell 30 some shirts we've sold like 1500 of them you know but i'm also stoked on a lot of the streetwear brands, specific ones. Well, this is exactly perfect. Let's talk about your shop that you're in right now, RIP yeah. City, which is uh, Rip City is a nickname for Portland, and it also it's on your the record right. too. So, how did you get into retail, man? How are you so, doing a lifestyle brand now? So, so we. <laughs> When I originally was doing the first soft kill shirts for kind of the reemergence of soft kill, which I guess would have been 2015 leading up to meeting you, I was doing shirts that didn't say soft kill intentionally. I thought it was, we had this logo and I thought it was cool to have it be mysterious, but also be something that like anybody could wear. And I don't think it was fully thought out, but that was kind of the skeleton of the idea. Once we started realizing that, you know, trying to live off of music is really hard. Mm-hmm. And we would be like, fuck, gotta pay rent this month. They'd be like, we could do a couple t-shirts and ooh, ooh. And that's where I started getting into like re-exploring 
mm-hmm. the flyer art and stuff that I used to do as a kid. Cause I used mm-hmm. to start bands that didn't exist and make catalogs for my distros. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? Like I was an right. idea person more than bother person, but I always experimented and explored. So we started going full board with the merch. We started as a band seeking out weirder stuff that we could do, but mm-hmm. also better quality blanks for t-shirts, mm-hmm. better quality hoodies. Always got to get the nice shirt, man. Nobody wants a gild in. Exactly. And, and shaving your nipples all day, you know? Right. And you spend, and it's strange because I wore Gildan for years. And Me when too. I started wearing comfort colors, which Gildan also makes, but that feel of like a 90s skate tee is what those feel like. They're a little oversized. Yeah. And, you know, just wearing some of these, these heavily washed hoodies and shit. I was like, I'd go back to a Gildan. I feel like I'm putting a, like a paper shirt on and getting ready to like be probed at the doctor. I know. I, I have so many shirts I'll buy like from a band because I want to support them. But then yeah, they just, just go like, on a shelf. Goes <laughs> in the drawer, you know, like whatever. It's the worst. And so like we started doing that. The store happened because, okay, so. Oregon or Portland is called Rip City. It's a Blazers term, and they called it a, a Rip. From my understanding, is a swoosh, right? We started jokingly calling it like a morbid sense of humor that it was Rest in Peace City for mm-hmm. everybody that we knew that died. Perfect. So, so we kind of did our little adaption of it, and then started branding and putting stuff up there, and starting telling people we were from RIP City, and they were just like, "What?" And <laughs> this building that we're in. It just looked so perfect. It was this little white cement box on my drive. Oh my God, it looks, it's the cutest little building from the outside. It's like so cool. We've got the Adidas campus right down there. And we've got like a little coffee shop here. It was was on a drag, but also off the beaten path. Mm -hmm. And it was rented by, they just legalized psilocybin here. Yeah, I heard that. Wow. This was the fucking office for the committee that was trying to raise money for the vet you know to not only get it on the ballot but awareness around town yeah and i remember i've said this a million times but i saw it and i was well that place isn't gonna this isn't gonna be a permanent thing right like yeah it's like a campaign office basically right like they're either gonna be here short term or really short term so i was when they when they leave we're renting that fucking building and one of those joke ideas well two weeks later there was a fucking for rent sign on the building and mm. i looked in the call and i was like dude bluff called like let's fucking call that number we called it the rent was super reasonable mm. we needed more space to do to store all of the mail order stock because especially to just like the process of packaging and shipping the new album it being a double lp their heavy gatefold tip on jackets dude i've got like yourself. right we're doing it ourselves and we're doing it out of the house and then we we got a, a, a rehearsal studio that doubled as an office and pretty quickly it was all the office with like guitars pushed into the corner and we we're like well we gotta get that <laughs> the fuck out of there so so we can make music so we're like, god if we just got a space and then had the front half be this kind of bonus store instead of saying yeah we're doing a store all the money is on that and then it grew pretty quickly. Like it was, could be soft kill stuff, but could be a highly curated record selection and carry other bands that we rock with. And we had started doing the Poison Idea store. 
We're like, we can nice. put all the poison idea stuff in there. And then I was like, well, what about like guitar effects? Like there's a bunch yeah, of- Yeah, you have pedals and a glass case and an amp and everything. Yeah, we've got a bunch of that stuff. I was like, what if we just created this vibe that was like not your typical guitar store too? Come in here and the pedal side of it, it's all stuff that you can see on the internet, but have never gotten to hold in person because mm -hmm. these, these brands are so hyped and stuff flies so quickly. We've got so many musicians here, like any major city. They come in and it's this little corner, it's a living room. There's a nice old, you know, 65 Fender Showman that anything sounds good through. <laughs> Plug in and, and get more hands-on experience directly with stuff that YouTube videos don't always tell you if it's for you, you know? And that's, it just started growing and kind of becoming this passion thing. And That's so cool, man. I was so yeah, and then you actually, you say to yourself, oh, wait, I'm also supposed to diversify. Right. Like I'm supposed to be mm. doing other stuff. And it's, mm -hmm. it's scary. I say this a lot. I feel incredibly grateful for where Soft Kill is at and the amount of uh, money that we can generate and, and help pay everybody yeah. in the bank's bills. It feels similar to when I sold drugs. There's this fear of any day you being out of business. Mm -hmm. And part of that's just how fickle audiences are and how the government clearly doesn't think that this industry is an industry, even though billions of tax dollars are probably paid from tours. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. So just to me, it was like any way that we can start to, to make money doing other things in addition seems like a win. And the community has been embracing it for, you know, at least a month that we've been open. So, so yeah. How do people, how do people know about the, the shop? How are you letting people know? So initially it was, you know, we, we did an Instagram, which is my favorite social media platform. It's, it seems to just be like concise. It's mm -hmm. engaging. It's interactive. You know what I mean? You got uh, cool it's looking shit like, there too, you know? So somebody in Arizona could just be following you, looking 100%. at your t-shirts. 100%. Fans of your band or just this kind of music or whatever, you know? Right. So initially we piggybacked off of, we just started taking the soft kill Instagram and reposting every single thing in the stories that we're posting on here that built it pretty quickly. But the, the hurdle is stepping outside of the soft kill audience. And mm -hmm. I think the money, the biggest money maker will, will likely be guitar effects. Mm -hmm. And it's getting people in town to know about that because people still go to websites and go to the retailer section and go like, who has it in my town? Yeah. I feel like anybody that's tried to run a business and this like a band too, you are constantly trying to figure out how to reach more people. And you're constantly surprised by how many people that you think would know about it. On, on a, like as a kid no idea or, well you put a new record out like six months later and you're like yeah Dude, you have all my albums you didn't know we put this fucking record out how yeah. is that happening there's a disconnect yeah. obviously social media wants you to pay to promote and by promoting they mean putting it into the feeds of people that fucking have already followed you you know and and right care about it which is funny but yeah it's just another one of those examples of here's this community zone that we can shape and utilize to spread awareness of all of each other's projects and causes and ups and downs and then after a while they're like oh they're they're making too much money doing this like we've got to find a way to tackle <laughs> it, you know that type of shit so yeah it's just it's just going to take time and it's yeah it takes 
I think for stores, I think people are like, do I have the money to stock a store? And that's part of it. But do you have enough money to stay open long enough to where people start to figure out that you're here and then you can start getting people coming in and out? And we're not doing online sales for like effects pedals or any of the records that we carry by bands that we fuck with or influenced by. So I, we want it to be, we're handicapping ourselves to have it specifically available to the local public. And, you know, we're doing it during a time where people don't want to leave the house. Mm-hmm. But that being said, people it's are coming not out. It's going to be forever, and, man. We're going to get out of it. And we'll be, right. And people are coming out. People are coming out and we're getting to interact with peers and fans at a time where, like, no, none of, no other bands really are, you know? Yeah. So I feel blessed for that. And bands can do when we can have when we can have things happen where more people can show up, but why not do a signing there? Why not do different things yeah. with artists of, you know, your friends and whatever, you know? We want it to be, we want it to feel, and I've, and I've felt this way, like Bodega in Boston. Yes. Where you almost just like anything that they taught, like the people that they can get to come through and the, the mutual validation of it feels so exciting. You're like, Yo, yeah, how did you get a collaboration with so-and-so? Or Oliver is a friend of mine. And I remember that because he worked in the Middle East and I remember he showed me he initially the idea for Bodega was going to be almost like a school bus and all of the cool stuff that is now like curated in Bodega would be in the school bus and they would just they would kind of drive it around kind of like a pre-pop-up of of like a like a lifestyle brand you know like oh come in you know like we're over here like a pop-up food truck or something but like for culture and then when he, I saw Bodega from the day it was started and then he was telling me their cool idea for how to get into the place and everything. And then, yeah, but now they have a place and that place is fucking awesome. Like it's so the first nice. Time I walked into that fucking place because I, I knew about it and I think we had just gone to, like we, it was when we played it once. So mm. we pulled up ever since that fucking, that Red Sox win against the Dodgers. Mm. That was, I've just been pretty like, like back to baseball obsessed for the past few years, you know, I was when nice. I was a little kid and, and it's, I'm going to get hella shit because I have the white socks on my face. Chicago is, I feel dual citizenship between Chicago and New England. Okay. I am a Sox fan. I fuck with the white Sox because I have Southside Chicago love and I fuck mm. with the Red Sox and mm-hmm. everybody else can go fuck themselves. That's my affiliation team wise, right? But that Red Sox win against the Dodgers was so epically beautiful. And mm-hmm. I actually watched that in the Chinese-owned Mafia Casino. And so we were just like, we played a show, we went in there. So if after that, when we came back, we went, you know, we got to go just touch Fenway. We went to the Fenway store. I think I bought tickets for a game I wasn't going to be able to go to. Because uh, our baseball at the time, Owen, he's from New England too. We just walked around like, yeah, you know champs you know yeah and like yeah. bought some fucking bought some red Sox gear and then i went yo we got to check out this place bodega and yeah we walked in, in. right and when we walked in you know you walk into this little you don't even know like you walk in you go oh whoops you and feel then like when an that idiot hits, yeah dude i was like i felt like i was like in the ninja turtles when they enter the lair in the beginning yeah oh my god like, I was in awe. I couldn't even focus on anything. And then you go in there, it's, like, so nice. It's so nicely laid out. And I see, like, your spot looks, like, pretty nice, too. Oh, like, what does it look like in there? 
You got nice shelves and everything yeah, in we, your place. It looks Nicole's cool, man. Dad, Nicole's dad built it all out. Nice, um, It's clean. It's posh. I wanted things to be, I think inherently I always want things to be like this scuzzy underground punk store. You know what I mean? Like, because that's yeah. the niche that I thought was cool. But, you know, laminated wood floors and muted colors and fucking stylish looking shelving and shit like that. That like, cool sign. Know, the, the sign is cool too. Yeah, this is like fake plastic flowers on the on just styrofoam letters and spray painting them. Having it come in and feel where everything feels like it has its place. No area of it feels dead. It's there's still room for more stuff, but it's it's stocked nice and full. Some of those stores like streetwear stores, especially I walk in and I go, how's this place open? There's like nine shoes, 12 <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know, but there's just a dedication to that. And I think it can go either way. I think businesses like this can be, this is how limited the selection is. Mm-hmm. This is all the shit that fucking rules. And you're going to believe that too. Yeah. Or, you know, we've got quite a bit of shit. So I think there's like a, a cut, like you can't go too overboard, but yeah, places like Bodega, they're inspirational. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to, I always want to be in the fucking mix of things that mm-hmm. I love. And a cool way to do that is just by supporting brands, by carrying them in a, in a store that is then presented to your local community. It's um, such a cool like thing. Like you said, like you're, you're diversifying, but it's like a, it's a, it's a pivot. It's an additional thing, but it's also complementary to everything you're doing and everything you love and everything you stand for. I mean, you basically run like an art store, <laughs> you know, right. a store that has art and whether that art is music or or pedals or t-shirts i mean it's all the stuff you love brother and why and why that stuff is important without going on like this fucking long whatever aesthetics are super important to me and i've always been as excited to hold the record as to listen Mm -hmm. to it so i feel like i've always been drawn into uh the tangible aspect of music Mm -hmm. of like physical format Mm-hmm. which is not an uncommon feeling because like record sales are going through the roof again, right? Yeah, um, it's the most common. I mean, vinyl is the most purchased music. There's a period where it didn't feel like that was going to be the case. and I know, uh, but it is. It keeps proving it. I, I mean, I don't, I have a really shitty turntable situation here, but when my friends come out with records, I always try to buy it digitally at least. But uh, yeah, I love looking at records too, man. I love it. And, so and that... That love and interest like that kind of adapt. Like that's why I started to love you know, specific sneakers, specific Nike sneakers and some Adidas stuff and New Balance and liking, mm-hmm. guitar, you know, guitars and gear and going into these other things, just like there's specific stuff that, that will, it's not just limited to that. And how could we put that into one building? But it's cool. Like we all, every like punk rocker, like wanted to own a store at some point you know <laughs> yeah like a record store or something yeah yeah and we in you know newberry comics used to i would just like this is the dream you know like initially back in the day i don't know what newberry is going through change wise when i go in there now i'm this is not in any way shape or form what i remember no. but the one on the route one saga strip when i was a mm-hmm. kid and then obviously the one on newberry those were just like oh dude 
And there was also there was also Alston Heat. Remember that store? Yeah, that was, a like, that was mostly clothing, but that was the lifestyle. Yeah. I would go down there and in college. Wait, was that with, like, like right next? Is that the place next to Newberry Comics that had like Fred Perry sneakers and Ben Sherman yeah. stuff? And yes. I would go in there and I would buy, I was going to raves. <laughs> so I would go in there every weekend and get a fresh drive shirt with like 70s lettering. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had my Jenkos on, man. You know, and I, but I was like, I don't know, I was stretching that back then. I was like that's, always that, like trying to keep up with everything. That strip having Tower that I guess became Virgin, Newbury Comics, it was that other downstairs record store, another block down. And mm-hmm. then, right, and then around the corner, the the Berkeley Daddy's Junkie Music. Oh yeah, and we would get you know my when we came to Boston, like I feel like we'd always land and I'd have to basically run through Boston Common and then start just going <laughs> down the whole stretch of Newbury to get to the other end of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like so far. <laughs> it's it's. I mean, it's feels like a hundred miles when you're a kid and all you're trying yeah. to do is go to the seven inch section in Newbury Comics. But uh, yeah, that I mean those. I think from the beginning of time, the experience of the obtaining of the music was as important to me as uh, the listening to it, especially when you're going back to like Summersworth, New Hampshire and listening to it with your two friends. And then you walk out into a world that doesn't understand and embrace who you are whatsoever that's around Mm -hmm. you, you know? It felt cool to be in an environment that validated your existence even without conversation you know mm-hmm. what i mean just because like it was in that store for a fucking reason they thought it was cool you wanting to buy it means that you're cool right and mm-hmm. and on and on and of course any city feels like that to, to suburb kids so because that's the weird thing because new hampshire is a suburb of boston it feels that way mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. just being in the shadow of that it was cool to go down there and have that so i feel like all of that planted a seed to where eventually a store was going to be part of it but also just being the band with a store looks great to the world they're like fuck how are they doing it and it's like <laughs> the short answer is just that we don't know when to stop you know we're insane well speaking of that i feel like i've taken away too much of your sunday with you, you know you got Get Dominic at home and everything. You yeah, know, we could probably wrap it up now, but I do want to send the best to those guys and and thank you for for joining us here, man. I'm really excited for you, and I love the record, as I said, and I can't wait to get out to Portland and visit your store. <laughs> yeah, we'll be here. Um, and God, can't wait to get through Boston again. Um, praying for and thinking about the future of, of live music there. Pretty consistently, you know, as, as we're going through this, Boston is a city I think about a lot. And go. Yeah. Well, I saw that you had you had your tour dates for this record booked, right? And then they mm-hmm. kind of get... Yeah, so. we're supposed to play... I want, I want to say we were going to play Sonia. Mm, probably. But yeah, yeah, that's part of Middle East. So who knows what's happening with that either. But, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll make it happen, man. We're awesome. Yeah. Good You're the talk, best, yeah. dude. This was so good. I really appreciate it, man. I'll let you know when we post it up. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Have a good Sunday, man. You too.